Welcome to Humble Brag. My name is Nate Mendel. In this episode, I'm joined by my brother Yudi and my friend Shoshi. For context, all three of us are observant Orthodox Jews. Yudi lives in Lakewood, New Jersey, but his heart has always been in Israel. He's a longtime Zionist and has developed a keen understanding of the political landscape that permeates this topic. We recently did a three-part series on the topic of Zionism. You can check that out. I'll put a link in the description. During the first few minutes of this episode, Yudi was in his office with a high-quality mic, but due to poor internet connection, he had to abandon his post and go into his car. That's what we consider evil forces trying to sabotage an important conversation. Yudi is married to an Israeli whose family primarily resides in Israel. One member actually lives in Netivot, which is less than a mile or two from where the Hamas terrorists reached in their invasion. Yudi also attended yeshiva in Israel and spent critical young adult years there. Shoshi and family are dual U.S. and Israeli citizens who moved from the United States to Israel, I believe, more than 10 years ago. Shoshi has not left Israel since she arrived home. Keyword home. Jews only have one home. Shoshi's son has been actively helping supply IDF soldiers with food and water, and she is now holding down the fort while all men are either out in battle or supporting the efforts. I am also a dual citizen of the United States and Israel. Me and my wife moved to Israel about three years ago. My wife gave birth last year in Ashdod. Our home is in the south of Israel, although we are currently in the United States on a road trip. Our plan was to return home in a week or so, and the next few days will determine whether we can return home or not. Our home is positioned between Gaza and Yerucham. We are about 60 kilometers or a 45-minute drive from where the massacre took place. Thank God the terrorists didn't make it that far, and our Yeshuv remained unhindered. Otherwise, I'd be mourning the deaths of my friends. That said, we aren't speculators, sitting on the sidelines vomiting opinions and anecdotes. We are speaking about our survival and experience. The Gaza Strip isn't theoretical to us. It isn't an idea that we watch on television. It is our backyard. The outcome of this conflict determines our existence and future. If my thoughts, opinions, and assumptions, my reactions and future actions aren't accurate or are wrong, it can cost me my life as well as my family's life. No aspect of this has margin for error, nor is it a game. Please subscribe and leave a comment or rate the podcast. This is a tremendous help. If you're watching on YouTube and the channel looks brand new, this is because you're on our duplicate channel. YouTube handed us down a strike on our primary channel because we were posting videos of Hamas terrorizing Jews, and that violates their violence policies. This means we cannot post any new videos for a week. So for the near future and after the restriction is lifted, we'll be posting our episodes on both channels. So please subscribe and check out the other one for older episodes. Thank you and enjoy. Hi, welcome to Humble Brag. I'm joined with my brother Yudi again and my friend and partner Shoshi Ryder. 
Shoshi's actually in Beit Shemesh, Israel. Yuri's in Lakewood, and I don't even know where I am. Wisconsin, Minnesota, where are we? I think we just got into Wisconsin. <laughs> when you're on the road for like seven weeks and you're going from state to state, I have no clue what's going on anymore. All I know is I'm just running to the next campground, connecting my Wi-Fi <laughs> and firing up the machine. Um, me and Yuri recorded the other day. It was an emergency broadcast, so we didn't set up the high-quality mics. And, of course, people were complaining about that. Um, so I dug out the high-quality mics from the back of the truck. <laughs> I actually have it with me. I have a whole portable setup. But um, anyway, um, all right. So, yeah, we're dealing with a very serious topic, and there's so much to discuss. Um, a lot of us discuss this all the time, right? And now that this happened, the world's discussing it. So one of the first things is that, you know, you see what's going on. You're watching the news and stuff. Yuri's, Yuri's video is frozen. Yuri, can you hear me? Watching the news, looking online basically at what's going on, it's really frustrating because it feels like everyone's just talking about the wrong things. At least two-thirds of the people, right? That's that's a feeling you get. In this episode, I want to talk about the right things or things that matter. Tachlis, as we say in Yiddish and in Hebrew. The bottom line or the purpose. There has to be purpose in what we're talking about. And right now online, probably 90% is purposeless or more. There's very few people talking about tachlis. Words, politics, anecdotes, words like peace, resolution, all these types of things, all these words, they don't mean anything right now. They shouldn't, they shouldn't even be being said. These are conversations that shouldn't be taking place whatsoever, right? There's a, you know, I don't know, I forget what that famous quote is. There's a time for peace. There's a time for war. I don't know where it's from, but, you know, everyone's quoting it. I've said it now. And, on right. It's from... Um, I mean, who's, who's speaking like this, Nate? I haven't heard any of that. No one I know is talking. Oh, my God, online? No, so the, I'm not... I- yeah, so the big divide is like everyone wants to have the, the conversation now about peace and resolution and, and blah, 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 blah. When somebody comes into your house, kills your, you know, your mother and rapes your wife and, and steals your kids, there is no conversation to be had. There's just go out and eradicate that person, make sure they cease to exist. And if it's an entity with a lot of people or a group, you make sure they cease to exist. That is what's supposed to take place. In reality, not in the world of words and politics. In reality, that's what's supposed to take place. And what we're seeing now are that two-thirds of the conversations or more, I think it's 90 plus percent, are the conversations that we were supposed to have, you know, before or that or that people who care about the topic are always having. What's the solution? No, he said, she said, they should have land, they shouldn't have land. What is all this? And it's nauseating, right? And we had it's a conversation I, two I days ago. I couldn't even read that. And simple things. I, I, people talking about peace. Don't talk about peace now. Now you talk about killing. Tomorrow we talk about peace. You don't talk about peace. It's this, and me and Yuri discussed this two days ago. It's this going down this rabbit hole, this, this theoretical Christian analyzation of what is right, what is wrong, so on and so forth, and, and, and talking about politics. When it comes to life and death in this regard somebody just came and killed your family slaughtered you there is no conversation and that's why when somebody like Netanyahu right away said this is going to be a long thing I, I almost vomited 
because it's not supposed to be a long thing. War is supposed to be decisive, fast, and quick. A moral war, as we discussed the other day, is a quick war. You take care of business. The second he said it's long, well, that's what he's been saying for 20 years. That's the, that's the story we always hear. So that means that what are we going to do? We're not going to take care of Hamas? Because if we're taking care of them, it has to happen quick. If it's long, then it's just the same story. So it's very frustrating to just see the whole world wakes up and, and they're just talking about the same thing for the past 20 years. That's not the conversation that should be had right now. The only thing that matters right now is action. So in that regard, I've been thinking a lot about what... Correct what, action. Right. That's what we've, we've been discussing slightly in the past few days. So this is where you start talking about things that really matter. Some people will say, wipe out Gaza. Carpet bomb it. Turn it into a parking lot. Right? Naturally, I was feeling like, that's not my M.O. I'm more like send in 200,000 troops and control all of Gaza, kill or capture every single Hamas entity. And then I started thinking about what is the difference? Why wouldn't they do this or why wouldn't they do that? Why is carpet bombing um, Gaza immoral versus going in and killing all the terrorists? And in the midst of that, civilians will die. And you start thinking about the morality behind these different models or modes of, of direction Something interesting popped up, like I told you the other day, where it's almost like a paradigm shift. I hear a lot of pious, intellectual, smart people taking the more traditional approach to war, which is you eradicate, annihilate. And I started thinking about that, and I was discussing that with you a little bit, right? So then I started thinking about that. What is moral? Morality in wartime, right? What, what's it mean to be moral when you're going to go kill people? And I, I believe I started having a bit of a paradigm shift where I realized that I, just like everyone else, was indoctrinated over time growing up in America by politics and theory of morality and war and how we should act and what it is to be a good person. All this talk of peace, right? But Jews... We look at the Torah, the Old Testament, to tell us what's moral or not. We don't decide in 2023 what is moral. So by me saying, no, let's not bomb them. Let's go in with troops. Because I think, because I was indoctrinated by American society to think that that's more moral. Because we're going to kill less civilians. It's silly. And I know that intrinsically. I'm just a, I'm the effect of my surroundings, of my, of, of everything that I was taught. So this is what I wanted to start on, is that when you start analyzing what it means to go to war, how we go to war, and what morality is in war, the doors start to open a bit. And what I started finding was that the whole notion of not wiping them out is related to, you know, it being potentially immoral. Now, we know that Israel, for example, might not do that because of politics and the consequences, different things that they measure. But at its crux, people feel like it's immoral. Why is it immoral? Well, they're going to say because they're innocent. Define innocence. And that's the conversation that we were having today. Define innocence. What does it mean that somebody's innocent? 57% of Palestinians in Gaza support Hamas as the government. Yeah. They think 
It can't be that low of a number. It has to be higher. Well, the other ones support, um, you know, Abbas or Fatah or whatever, which is might not be too far off. But those are the ones that openly, outrightly say they support them. About 52 or 53 percent of all Palestinians in Israel think that Hamas should be the government of all Palestinians. When you hear that and you combine that with the fact that these Palestinians were on the street celebrating and giving out candy and lighting fireworks right after Jews were slaughtered, what does it mean innocent? When, at what point do they become innocent? After the bomb fell and the kid died, then he was innocent? Four days ago when he was holding an AK-47 with the Hamas thing around his head, then he wasn't innocent? At what point are, are, are kids, our parents, our entire families considered innocent? The conversation of morality, the conversation of who is innocent and who, sh- who should die and who shouldn't becomes very complicated. And it's not as simple as like Westerners like to think about innocent family and friends, you know, so on and so forth. Um, what do you think about this, Yuri? So what I'm saying is that when you're seeing that military objectives, when you when you don't even understand what it is that the war is, he smacked me, so I'm smacking him back. No, that's petty. That's that's me and you beating each other up. War has a, a much, much more profound meaning and feeling on, on everything, on society and on, on, on every everyone involved, the whole civilization involved. And I think a couple of good principles, once you start viewing war through that lens, you're not going to hear such things as we're going to make we're going to ensure that Hamas doesn't have fighting capabilities for the next 50 years. Did you not hear what your mouth just said? How do they write that? How do they say it? That means that when this fighting is over, there still is a Hamas. And if the purpose of the war of victory is victory over the over the enemy, meaning you have to define an enemy and you have to be willing to vanquish the enemy. Absolutely. Otherwise, why are you going to war? Why are you sending in soldiers to get killed? It's immoral. That's immoral. It's just as immoral as leaving your uh, border communities undefended. So they're piling on immorality with it, or just bomb, like you started out, bomb it back to the Stone Age and just do that. But you're going to send in soldiers when you're, you're stating right now clearly that your objective is so that Hamas doesn't have the capability of committing such stuff in the future. You're out of your mind. You just you just ruined it before it even began. What do you think about that principle? That the purpose of combat is victory over the enemy, meaning like in World War II, they learned from World War One. World War One, they didn't wipe out Germany. They came there was a there was a there was ceasefire, there was a, a, an agreement. 30 years later, Hitler rises based on all that. What did they what did they do? What did Patton? What did Eisenhower? What did they say? Complete and utter annihilation this time. And they 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 turned German cities into piles of rubble. Cities way bigger than Gaza, 
with many more women and children completely annihilated. What do you think about that first principle? This is what I'm, this is what I'm starting to explore. And it's a very, very important thing to explore in times like these. These are the things that matter because the, the politics and the peace talks and all that bullshit, none of that matters. It's all irrelevant. It's a matter of, can we, I shouldn't say comfortably, but um, effectively make a decision to, to end this. And in the face of half the world calling you immoral and all of that, right? Because that's, that's essentially what's going to take place. What I do see is that traditionally, and I think, I think what we think in society is that we went away from these archaic practices, but what we are learning factually is that we haven't fully graduated barbarism. The only so, way uh, to so combat that. So I can, we, we can even get to that principle. But just on the first principle alone, agreeing that the purpose of combat, the purpose of going to war is to win. Right. Is to um, win. Right. Not not to put your set your enemy back fifty years. To win, to absolutely win, which that, means they don't exist anymore. That is starting to become very clear logic to me, and I could see how politics and Western talk makes you makes you overanalyze, and you start becoming nuanced in areas that you shouldn't be nuanced. Um, hence, this conversation in Israel, Shoshi. First of all, you live in Israel for years, right? So you also have a better feeling for how Israelis kind of view war, what might or might not be moral. What's the general consensus and feeling there? Oh, gosh. I, I, this is why I wanted Moshe on. <laughs> I, really, we're so, we're so American. So, I, I mean, I... I... Yeah, true Israelis, no. But how does it feel? Like, did the thought even come into your mind... Do you and Israelis and your neighbors even think about overanalyze the way that the way that Americans do? Because I'm overanalyzing the notion of bombing versus invading. Is it just wipe them off the map? End of story. Well, right before this war, you have to remember that Israel it has been in turmoil between the right and the left. You know, it's been so separated. There's been so much um, violence between the two groups. Um. And then the war broke out, you know, and everyone is there for each other all of a sudden. We're all united in this quote-unquote war against Hamas, you know. But right before this, nobody could agree on anything. So the, the, the opinions would be divided, which, by the way, I want to say on that, since you mentioned it. I was listening to Laser Brody, and rabbis, Torah people, will always have, you know, more of a spiritual, a Torah-based perspective of why things take place. And I, I'm listening to him. So he mentions that the same thing. There was sinat chinam. So there's inner turmoil. Um, and whenever there's sinat chinam, we know from from history, really bad things happen to the nation. In fact, uh, you know, the Beit HaMikdash and, and various other times throughout. Rabbi Akiva, always, always Jews fighting and then a calamity. And I was thinking about, so your regular people will never connect 
to the insight of a Talmud Chacham, somebody who understands and sees the world from that perspective. They don't connect to it because it's not practical. It's not. And I was actually thinking how practical it is because a little while later, I'm listening to some conservative um, guy. I forgot his name, Dinesh, whatever, one of those bigger guys on online. And what's he saying? That right before the war, there's a lot of inner turmoil, kind of like in America, and they're fighting with each other. And, and politically, they're so focused inwards, and Netanyahu's so busy trying to get his shit together, blah, 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 blah. And then this happens. So it, it leaves a vacuum and a space for these things to happen. And it just like, kind of sprung in my head, because I, I believe that really we all agree universally, because there's only one truth. And... Um, some people just see it from a different perspective, but essentially we're always saying the same thing. And when you think about it, they're, they're essentially saying the exact same thing. The Torah guy just basically says, Sinat chinam, it led to this. The political guy says there's... And, but what I'm saying is, these Torah perspectives, these insights, is really interesting. It doesn't play out, as we always say. It doesn't happen magically. It happens in reality in a natural way. Inner fighting leads to, let's say, letting your guard down and focusing on the wrong things, which leads to something like this being able to happen. So it's very fascinating that like, those Torah insights actually play out in a very natural way, and, and you see it. Um, okay, fine. So you don't want to get gruesome and answer head-on whether Israelis, you feel like... Do you even analyze whether or not it's moral or not? Do Israelis overthink it the way that oh, Americans God, no. do? I, listen, I don't. I, I honestly can't answer that. I am not in the Israeli culture. I can okay. tell you what me and my friends are discussing. You know that, and I have many friends. I mean, everyone has. Everyone either has a husband or father or son that's in the army or in reserve. It, you know somebody, you, no one is exempt from this. And uh, of course, the consensus is we go in and we obliterate them. You know, there's not even a question. You know, I have no problem saying that. And and I'm actually surprised to, to hear that anyone would think, and it's shocking to me, but it's, it's of course, in the teva of the world that um, anyone, you know, with, it, to me, it's such a liberal leftist outlook that civilians that are supporting Hamas is not considered part of that war. If you're supporting them, if you're in Gaza, you're indoctrinated with these ideas and you are a threat to Israel. Right. And to and... the Jewish to the Jewish nation, it's not even a question. You know, you want to get gruesome. Do we want little kids and babies to, you know, be blown up in front of us? No, nobody, nobody wants to see that. But a bigger picture of war is, yes, you go in and you have a right to destroy your enemy. And not to mention, to begin with, that they shouldn't even be there. You know, this is after the fact. We're picking up the pieces from so much trauma that has been brought onto us. You know, this is such a weakness in us that we even allow them to exist there in the first place. This is at the crux of, of my question, and this is this is what I'm this is what I'm talking exploring. Um, it seems that it seems to be making more and more sense. Certainly, traditionally, I'm putting on my talus because it's cold out. <laughs> you holy yid. <laughs> It's freezing out. It's 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 getting down to the forties. I'm sitting out here in a campground. So um certainly I'm starting to come around to that and traditionally that's how it always was. There's no question. Even today, take America. 
if somebody would shoot rockets into America, you know, on an ongoing basis, more than one or two, three times, they'd be wiped out. There's no question about it. When you own a country and it's really yours and you feel like it's really yours, you wipe out anyone who's creating an existential crisis. And the, the fact that Israel is so easygoing with that topic and they allow more and more Jews to be harmed and they allow this to happen makes you question whether we have an in, uh, inferiority complex. There's the superiority complex that we discussed the other day that they think we think we're so tough and we slept on it and then this happened. That's a different side of it. We worship Tzahal in a certain sense. We think we're so great. Hashem showed us. The other side of it is the opposite. There's an inferiority complex, and that's what Manus Friedman was saying in one of his videos. We don't actually feel like it's our land because if we did, we would act that way. Hamas, they feel like it's their land. They're acting that way. They're going in and trying to slaughter all of you. And until we don't play that same game, until we don't get to that level, it, this is just, you know, keep on going. So that's basically what I was thinking on that. I agree 100%. 100%. Yeah, go ahead. I, I agree 100%. There's an, um, an identity crisis in Israel, and it's not even amongst the population. It's amongst the leadership more than anything. Since Oslo, since they were giving back territories for peace and admitting to these people that they have a right to the land, well, they want more, and they want more, and they want more. You're showing them that it's not yours, and here you go. We'll give you this, and then we give them Gaza, and then Ehud Barak wants to give 95% of the West Bank back in 2000. And they, So why shouldn't they want to take more? They see that we're, we have an identity crisis as Jews owning the land, the land being ours. This is the response. This is what you get. That's the Senat Chinam leading to, you know, us losing things, the destruction. It's it's amazing how how that how it how it works that way, because um, typically you don't see that correlation. Um, it's starting to make more sense that, like you asked, like I want to actually I wanted to hear what Shoshi had to say about this lack of identity because she lives in Israel. Obviously, I've been to Israel. My wife is from Israel. I was in yeshiva in Israel. So like, and we go to Israel all the time. So I know Israel and I know Israelis and all that stuff. My wife's whole family still lives in Israel. My son's in Israel. My oldest son actually drafted last year, but my wife won't let him serve. So he's kind of AWOL here in America. But uh, oh. I'm feeling very left, fe- feeling very, very left out. He has I'm friends sure. that are in the army. His Rosh yeah. Hashiva actually got drafted uh, from Amit uh, wow. Hasidit. Yeah. So, um, so I certainly understand, but like you living there, like where do you live? In, in Bet Shemesh? Uh, American yeah, neighborhood? Yeah, I live in Bet Shemesh. And um, when we first made Aliyah, we wanted to integrate, but um, I, we, my husband and I are not great with language. And my kids are, are, I would say they're pretty much like 80%, you know, in the Israeli culture. But my husband and I are, are just not there. Um, how's it? And also, the, what is the Israeli culture? Like I said, identity wise, how, how, how? Yeah, you, bro- you broke up there, Yudi. It's a variety, but there was always an under. What? I'm breaking up. You broke There's up. Always, always uh, clarify your question to Shochi again. 
there's certainly a variety and it's a melting pot of Jews from all over the world and it's you know complicated and all that but there was always the feeling amongst the people and this goes back to the kibbutzim and the leftists Ben Gurion it di didn't matter they knew Israel's theirs and they fought for it and once the wars ended once the Yom Kippur war ended then you had 20 years of kind of quiet this little Lebanon war I feel that Israel just moved into this era of identity crisis. Maybe we could make peace with the Arabs. Maybe we could do this. Maybe we could. And this has been this weird ambivalence since then. Right. And I think she'll agree. It's 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 uh, it's where this is where we're at. You get an intifada when you offer them land. Arafat, go kill right. Jews, blow up right. buses, and it. it and I think the majority, I mean, just in the past 20 years, when I was in seminary, you know, I don't know, oh gosh, I, you know, more than 24 years ago, um, there were still settlers settling the land. People were passionate. People still wanted to join the army. They felt the connection to the land. And there's been such a decrease within the last 20 years where people don't care anymore. You know, the army is not something that people want to be part of, you know, especially after Gush Katif and um, there was so much trauma involved and they saw what the government did. And, um, and it just, you know, I think it was just the life was like sucked out of people. There was not enough support of this idea of settling the land, conquering the land. Um, how can you do that when you do that and you're forcibly, you know, taken out of your homes um, that you built up and given to, you know, terrorists? Yeah. I mean, they yep. knew what they were given to. So the morale of the country has decreased for so many years. So you guys are saying politics is basically leading to um, the law, the loss, like the loss of identity, the loss of purpose, the loss of everything that people were coming here for through politics, through overanalyzing. It's like we, we that inferiority thing. Okay, so to lay the morality thing to rest for now, and it's just something that people have to start exploring. Look, I, I'm from America, so I see in myself, I see in myself how I think about these things. And now that this has happened, it's forcing me to rethink it. This is something that we just have to think about. You don't have, you know, you're not going to change your mind from one day to the next, but maybe the way that people who overanalyze things in America, maybe that's not the way to go about things when it comes to war. Maybe there is a more moral, moralistic way. Um, and, and like Yuri said, to lay it to rest, maybe what we've been doing till now, maybe that's more immoral than actually wiping out Gaza. Carrying it on for 20 years, constantly living in fear and terror, people always dying and there's all these attacks happening, that might be more immoral than going in once, wiping it out, similar to how America ended the war with dropping nukes. Are we going to have this whole discussion about maybe they did back then, but the fact what's is... The, what's the counter-argument? Steel man that argument. Tell me how it's not the... Pro how, tell me how it's not more moral to end it once and for all, as BP hasn't done in the past 13 years, only going in and losing 70 soldiers here and 15 soldiers there, a, a kidnapped soldier. And the only argument, the only argument that I ever hear is that you're going to kill innocent, you know, uh, civilians. Essentially. Well, here we go. So we didn't do I, it. And right? I think it has now, nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with that. This is all political. 
This is not political. It doesn't, and it's it's so little to do with, you know. I, he doesn't give a shit if he's going to kill innocent civilians. He knows. Everybody knows. It's it's whatever it is. It's the power. It's the you know the the connections between all the other countries and and wanting you know and and money. I don't. I you know. I I really I don't I don't pay attention to all this. But we all know it's not. You know, I, that's not real. Yeah, I'm just saying from a theoret- from the from the talking point perspective, whether Netanyahu himself feels the way that we're talking now that maybe he needs to wipe out Gaza once and for all for Israel to live and thrive is irrelevant because he's not doing it. He might be afraid of retaliation from Syria, who knows. From um, Iran, Iran, it's proven that Iran has been backing Hamas, you know, it's all Yes. So for us it's more like if the people rethink what is right and what is wrong, and there's there are people who support X versus Y, then that's where that's where power comes from. Right now, you have half the world that will not agree with the notion of wiping out two million people. Um, but then you have a lot of people who do think that that's the right thing to do. And, and that's what the topic They don't necessarily on. have to, and again, it, it, it sounds crazy to say two million people, killing two million people. They, they, they don't have to kill two million people. A lot of them are fleeing. They're telling people to leave their homes because they're going to bomb. So many have fled to the south end of Gaza because you see, they bombed half of Gaza to bits and maybe what? They're, they're saying 2,000 right. dead. So they're not, they're not, you know, killing tens of thousands of people and they don't have to they have to destroy the city the city has to be completely destroyed what you do with the people afterwards that may be the world's problem or the un or whoever no so first of all what i i i I think what they're doing right now is not going to solve the issue destroying just this they have to destroy hamas not the buildings and if they're just going to sh- shoot the buildings and 5,000 died and Hamas still exists, they did nothing, right? So th- that's horrible. Within a year, they're back to the same strength and power that they had. And, and we've been through this cycle a million times. So speaking of fleeing, you sent me some of those points. Some of them are biblical. I, we're not going to lay this to rest for one moment because you just reminded me of a few more points. The Bible lays out halakhically what is moral in a war one of the things are giving warning allowing people to leave right not fully surrounding allowing people to leave from behind israel actually practices that factually in 2023 they warn people to leave um egypt not opening or opening the border and allowing people to leave and stuff like that that this all plays into it but a lot of what is actually moral biblically takes place and israel actually follows um and then whether they do it or not is, is, is kind of up to them. That shows you the, the, how much they support Hamas. If Israel tells you, leave, I'm going to bomb your house, and you don't leave, you're basically committing suicide. It shows how much you support you know, the people telling you to stay. Um, let's move on from that. Uh, hostages. I was getting the feeling, and I heard through somebody who heard from an IDF soldier, that uh, in a certain sense they're considering the hostages dead. In, in, the, in the way that they're moving forward with dealing with Hamas, because they can't, they can't take that into account. Um, I have this feeling, I don't know, of course they'll figure this out over the coming months, but Hamas probably thought that by taking hostages back in, 
they're going to negotiate like they always do, and this would somehow be worked. So they kind of bit off more than they could chew, I'm guessing, in the sense that this all fell out of, it got out of hand because they succeeded too well with what they did. As of now, as of now, let's see what really happens in the end. But certainly as of now, they bit off more than they can chew. But we'll see how the Israeli government really follows through. And then we'll know if they really bit off more than they... Right, I hope right, they right, right. Because right. if they just bomb for a few more days and... And then we're and, back. Right. They have 100 people that they can parade and butcher in public and post videos of it. Okay, right. So, okay, so that was one of the points on uh, morality... There were a couple. There were a couple others. We know from the Bible that in some instances they literally killed all the women and children. Like they are Malek type, where you have to eradicate fully. That exists, and there are times when that has to happen. And I think we might be dealing with that now. Um, and then there were times when you don't. It specifically says that you don't. You don't kill the the, the women and and so on. So it depends. Uh, the, the Torah also defines two types of wars, right? The um, the um, kind of like the, the defensive war and the mitzvah war, the obliga- obligatory war. And, and obligatory wars are ones that are related to um, Ju- uh, Israel, the land, existential. So this is absolutely, in, in that sense, a holy war. You have to do it. Um, okay, so let's move on from that. So hostages, so hostages um, I get the sense that they're kind of considering them dead but and they're going to keep doing what they do. But at the same time, you know, Behind the scenes, first of all, they did rescue some hostages already. Not like rescues, but in the first day, they got some back somehow. I don't even know what the details of that were. But um, maybe with America there and the assistance, maybe there, I, I imagine there's a team working on that. So, like, they might be trying to, to, to do that, but it's not going to stop anything, it doesn't seem. Let me move to this next idea. I had another thought also. So when you finish your idea... I had you, go, a very... you go first, because this is going to be a, a separate topic that'll take a few minutes. A very interesting thing, and I, I don't know how many people have been thinking about this or saying this. Um, it seems almost comforting when the same day that this goes down, like the next day, because here was some circus, we, we had two days, the next day, Yep. The Americans rerouted a, a carrier fleet, and suddenly they're like, okay, they're in the Mediterranean with aircraft carriers, right? They're showing support for Israel and all that. Makes me very, very nervous. And I was thinking about it today while I'm working. And the similarities to historical um, uh, uh, occurrences are so glaring and we have to be very, very careful. I don't know if you should be cheering this on. Of course, Israel wants American aid and, and, and you know, more bullets and bombs and missiles and all that stuff. 2,000 years ago, when, when John Harkinus and Aristobulus brought the Romans into Israel to fight each other, one side said, you know, hey, empire, help us out. They invited them in. Three gen- two, two, two generations later, the Romans destroyed Israel and just swallowed it all up. So it, it has a weird, ominous feeling when suddenly you have, it's not like they're airlifting, you know, supplies, which I'm sure they are. Suddenly there's aircraft carriers parking off the coast of Israel. 
it's, it, I it had a weird. I, I don't understand. I was just telling my husband. I still have friends who have um, sons in elite combat units without the proper gear. So America has come, and what are they actually doing? My my husband's like, no, they're good. They don't care about the units and their gear. They, you know, they're going to bring in the heavy, the heavy guns and the and the big, you know, the big money, and they're going to put it in. But it doesn't make sense. They are literally in hand to hand combat. They don't have the right knives. They're begging for the right knives, the white, the right helmets. They're not prepared to go in and with the right weapons to do hand to hand combat. And what I mean, it, that's basic, you know. So they come in with a big ship, and they don't even have like standard supplies. That doesn't even. It, that's absurd. So what do you think the? Um... The ship is there doing their show. She just to help Israel, meaning it's practical. Oh God, I don't know. I don't believe. I don't. I don't believe any, any. Any story, you don't believe the. Yeah, you don't believe the mainstream story. Look, it's an interesting idea. They're going to come in and save the day. Like all of a sudden, they give a shit. Come on. It's an interesting <laughs> like, idea yeah. that that Yuri you just put forth. Obviously, it's an idea. I mean, it's a thought. Or and further, it's a, we should be um, very careful. We're cheering it on. We don't need America fighting Israel's wars. You know, when they did that in in in, in the Gulf War, when America, you know, forty Scud missiles landed on in 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 uh, in, in you know Ramat Gan. It's it, you know, it's not always. I'll and see, again, yeah. historically, I, it doesn't yeah. play out well when you invite an empire into your backyard. To right. come help you yeah. uh take, yeah that's that's learning you know that's learning from experience i i'll say two things one is that you know i i would like to believe that they're just there to help and and i think israel was so distraught right after it happened because it took so long to regain control which is shameful in every sense um i think they were like almost fearing an existential crisis so they called in big daddy to help but that might just be my ignorance because people have been suggesting that there could, there could be all kinds of other players that help orchestrate stuff like this and all kinds of things could happen where people take advantage of America being caught off guard and who knows and you're saying maybe you know down the road this could turn into something even worse for Israel if America's there very interesting um, before we move away from this Shoshi um, your son went out to help tell us a little bit about what you know What's, what was going on there? You just touched on it a little bit, but going a little deeper on what was going on there and you know what he was helping with and how bad it actually is. So yesterday he brought supplies um, down south to, I think, two or three different army bases and then to Steyrot. Um, in Steyrot, um, everyone's locked in their houses. There's constant... I mean, I don't think it's as it was as bad today, but at least last night they're you know they're bombarded so with missiles, and they're terrified. You know, they've had terrorists that had come in, um, you know, just to open up the door. It, you know, they're just in complete fear. They're left without food. Um, the army bases uh, have been. You know, now it's funny, you know, there's so many jokes going around. We're all trying to lighten the mood, how, you know, when um, they actually go into Gaza, you know, all the soldiers are going to be like nice and fat from all the, you know, treats that are being sent to them. <laughs> you know, all of Israel sending them cookies and bomba and, you know, um, 
but severely, That's... severely um, lacking um, basic amenities. Severely lacking. Oh, you know, um, there was, uh, you know, just getting water was difficult. He was passing by, uh, you know, different um, set up stations along the way. And everyone was, uh, you know, all the Chayalim were like, do you have water? They're like, we have food, but there's no water anywhere. Um, and then finally, I think, I'm not sure um, if they got to a supermarket because everything's closed completely. I think they got access to a supermarket and they got access to water and they were delivering it. Um, you know, there was, you know, they sent me really beautiful videos along the way of what they were doing. And one of them was um, him and his friends were helping like, you know, this woman, she looks like a hundred years old who's been locked in our house all alone without access to medicine. They were bringing her um to her family they're not even allowed out i don't think they're anyone's even allowing them to leave um and tonight when he went he said like they when they deliver they literally are, are like crying they're like we're so hungry you're saving our life we're in the house with like all these kids um so the emotional trauma the physical trauma that they're going through so it's kind of like um it sounds very messy. The the but um, me and Yudi discussed this on the previous episode. We don't have to go in heavy. How 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 lacking the army was, and, and it's a whole it's a whole shameful thing. But that's more you know politics and stuff. They're going to get into that. Okay. You know, I really evening. hope that this is not. I mean, I really hope that this is not considered Russian horror that we're sitting here talking about this. About the state of the IDF. No, any first of all, anything that's public information is not lush and horror, right? Anything that is known to the world, something like the the soldiers lacking, and 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 the fact that they're shipping belts and and helmets and stuff like that from the U.S. because we don't even have enough to give to our reserves is is shameful. That's and it's public knowledge. I do want to share one more thing that he also saw. Um, there is so much um, strength and and um, even Simcha at these army bases. And, I, you know, I could send you a video of, you know, the, the um, Nanachs are going down with their vans and singing and dancing. And, um, and you can see all the videos from, you know, that are all around social media where the, yeah, sure. the reserves are strong and, and oh. they are on the forefront of the, of the battle and they are giving the rest of us chizuk and the rest of us strength. And we're modeling after them. Usually the, the soldiers, citizens are giving the soldiers it, energy. Like and that. that's the opposite. <laughs> the soldiers are amazing. Soldiers are always amazing. It, the IDF is a very powerful military. You saw how well they performed afterwards. It's the leadership. It's the politicians. It's always, always at the top who, who make terrible decisions, who don't listen to warnings. And, and so like, you know, the IDF but, itself. But let's phenomenal. not forget. They, let's not forget. You cannot have this conversation without really doing Hezbollah Hanefesh on such a personal level that the only reason that this ha- is happening is because we ourselves have allowed it to happen in our homes with the Machlokas, with other people, with our neighbors. We cannot ignore that. Ultimately, it's the inner turmoil. Yes, right, and we cannot ignore the fact yep. that. Um, that there is a bigger picture. We we believe this every day that Mashiach is coming, that this is there is a bigger plan, that everything is for the good. Nothing is for naught. Nothing is 
is for no reason. And we can sit here and blame the politicians all we want. And this is like fun to go back and forth, but I just want to, you know, be very clear on where, you know, where I know our hearts are, which is when we do the right thing, when we, when we act as Hashem's children, when we serve him with love, when we do his will, then we do not open ourselves up for this. Amen. Everything comes back to lack of a Muna on one level or another. Because when you lack a Muna, it leads to what it, what it, what this led to. Uh, superiority complexes, delusion, just on, on crazy levels. When you had real people like Yudi Sheard, um, and I put it in the link on the other video, of the general who warned that we're not ready for stuff. And they were warned that there's an attack coming. And, then, and so many things failed. All, all because of lack of amuna and getting ahead of ourselves, right, and starting to act like we shouldn't be acting. Um, here's an idea. Intellectual superiority. I was thinking about this idea, and I'm trying to understand it a bit. Not necessarily in the West. There is, like, a spectrum, in a sense. And on the far, far right, you have extremists like a Hamas spokesperson who will say civilians weren't killed. Okay, so he's a retard dumbass, whatever, a liar, everything, you know, he's trash just like them, because he knows civilians were killed, they'll say, then in the middle, you'll have people like half this world or more, half this world who will, they won't condemn the terrorists, they won't condemn terrorism, slaughtering babies, and then on the left side, nothing to do with right or left, I'm just creating the spectrum, you have intellectuals more and and, and these they seem to emanate out of very advanced countries like the united states united kingdom and france and all these types of places real forward-thinking democracies we have these intelligent people who they understand nuance there seems to be a almost an intellectual superiority i'm not making these claims i'm asking these questions because i just started thinking about this i'm seeing this pattern I'm trying to figure out what that pattern is. Why is it? And I'll give you an example. So you had the example of the far right, the guy who just lies. Take somebody in the middle, for example, Andrew Tate, to me and show she were talking about him the other day. So he is a Muslim, so fine, he's tribal, he's rooting for his team. That's okay. I understand that. And he'll say something like, I'm going to donate money to the Gaza kids because after the war is done, Gaza kids don't have water and Israeli kids do, blah, blah, blah. But he won't say, I condemn, let's say, violence of uh, terrorism. I, I condemn terrorism. I condemn chopping babies' heads off. He won't say that. And he's just an example of how almost half this world is on this topic. They are obviously intellectual, right? These are smart people, some of them, who could have very dynamic conversations and be very insightful in many areas of this world. But when it comes to certain things like this, they can't create that nuance. And then you have people on the left, people like us. I, if I see an Israeli, which I did, pissing and desecrating a Hamas body, that's despicable to me. It doesn't change the fact of my other side of my beliefs. I have the ability to have that nuance within my, you know, within my psyche. What is that? And they don't have a Jewish soul. But it's not just Jews, because there's plenty of non-Jews in the West and real intellectuals who could do this. They... Right. And there are Jews that hold the opposite view, too. You, you, you can take in Norman Finkelstein and 
people like him uh, of, of these very anti, anti-Zionist uh, Jews who I just saw the other day. He was in an, on an interview and he literally said, what else were they supposed to do talking about Hamas? It's so terrible for them. They have, they're under such oppression by the Israelis. What, what else do you expect them to do? He's justifying, he's a Jew. <laughs> he's a Jew that comes from Holocaust survivors, said this. He's a, he's a self-hating Jew. <laughs> but he's he, a Jew. He's all, he's, all, he's all the way on the right. He's with the example of the spokesperson. These are, that's lying and scum of the earth and so, people who should be killed I with think, Hamas. I, worse than the spokesperson? He, I think he's worse, personally. What, what, what shocked me, not shocked me, because I, I kind of, you kind of know it, as the years go on, but a lot of libertarian Western libertarians who I agree with their politics about America, Western politics, you know, and you can name this a whole bunch of them. They, they won't condemn what Hamas did. They're, they're still anti-Israel. They, they view Israel as just as bad. It's, it's, it's incredible to me. They, they feel that Israel does the same stuff to the Arabs living in, in, in Israel. So this is what I'm wondering about that. Is there a, is there an intellectual superiority that emanates out of very, very advanced countries? So it's just if you're blessed with it, you have it. If not, not. Because there are people who could create, they, understand, they take their brain, they compartmentalize. I condemn that, but I still hold this view. That's wrong, but I still have this view on, on, on the other side of it. It's not, it's not a game. I don't have to root for my team in that regard. But like I said, say that, what, that is, is the worst. That is terrible. That the world has not seen since Genghis Khan. Look, <laughs> you, the, you have to go back 500 years to see such behavior. Literally, you have to go almost to the Middle Ages to see something that bad. The Israeli who I, desecrates the body. Were, they weren't that bad. The Nazis did it clean and neat, and they weren't hacking and chopping. Again, some were, some did. Obviously, shooting twenty thousand people into a pit in in Ukraine is you know is up there. But this was barbaric, savage, medieval. This takes you back fifteen hundred years. Why in Nazi Germany it was like that? <laughs> it was exactly Again, so like that. They were embarrassed. They hid. They hid a lot of it. A lot of the concentration yeah. They tried to cover it up. Away. They knew they did something wrong. They they tried to delete, kill the evidence. Yeah. I saw on Shoshi. You told me about the website Memory. Memory, and he had an article there, and he was very he's very adamant about comparing them to more like SS soldiers. And of course, this guy knows the history and understands why their actions are more like that. But um, yeah, the Nazis tried to co- cover up what they did. They knew they did something wrong. What they were doing was wrong. That's one level. Here, you're talking about posting it on social media. This is a whole other level. Of, and I think of people are desensitized. There's such a removal. I, you know, they they don't really. People don't really feel. They don't. I, I just think. Well, people in general get so desensitized. Right. Well, okay. So you're making a good point. No, Shoshi, she's making a good point because. That's what I was thinking when I was thinking about these libertarians that I like to listen to podcasts and on YouTube and all that about American politics. Whenever it comes to Israel, they're there's Israel's just as bad as as as, you know, not just as bad. There were because Israel does this all the time in their head. But um, and, and so that's what that's what I think it is, because they 
absolutely do not understand the Middle East and the Middle Eastern culture and the Middle Eastern society and how the Arabs view things and how the Arabs understand things um, whatsoever. They don't understand it in the least. They never come. They never go. They're sitting back here, you know, in Milwaukee, watching stuff on TV. Of course, they're going to see a lot of negativity towards Israel. So they build up this view over 30, 40 years of how bad Israel is. But that's just a disconnect from reality. And fine, they're entitled to feel that way. I, I it just, it, what's surprising to no. me is they, they won't even say that Ham, what Hamas did was terrible. <laughs> They'll just like, okay, what do you expect? In Mitzrayim, Hashem gave the Mitzrayim, not only the Mitzrayim, also us, 10 makos, and each time an opportunity to see the truth, right? And, and slowly but surely, he weeded out who could see the truth and who couldn't. I, you know, I don't think it's any different now. He's going to give everybody, and you see people are coming back now. I have relatives that were so far. I mean, I'm getting confused because the left here means something different than there. And, you know, but um, we're so pro-Palestinian and, you know, so ethically moral, you know, and now they, they hear what's happening. It is changing people. This is changing people. Maybe not everybody, but you see it's it's weeding out who's going to open their eyes and, and who's not. Oh, yeah, for sure. It has to. Uh, such an event has to change certain minds. There was a, a very leftist professor in Israel, Zlicha, I think his name is, uh, real, real, real extreme. He He's saying bomb, bomb them back to the Stone Age. I don't care if you kill their children. Like, literally, he's saying that. Uh, he right. posted, and, yeah. I was going to say about Nate, um, you were saying about the the Israeli soldier that was desecrating a Hamas body, you know, um, and, and I, I mean, listen, I, I think we can, we can say that's not the right thing to do, (laughs) but you also have to understand that after they see their comrades, you know, being killed in front of them after they've went into these yeshuvim and have seen hundreds and hundreds of slaughtered bodies, whole yeshuvim taken out, for them to finally take down a terrorist and to be pissed off and to be doing that, like, I think we can look the other way and say, okay, you know, <laughs> all right. That 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 is my main point that I brought up, the intellectual superiority idea was centered around that. I look at that, and and I did want I wanted to say this that I could understand why he would do that. There is such a thing in in, in army uh, soldiers know this. Soldiers who have seen real battle, of seeing red. There's a, there's a point in time right where you get to that point of anger and where you just see red. You vibrate anger and vengeance. I understand that. Now, by the way, this person desecrating the body. I don't even know if he was a soldier. It looked like a civilian. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I know that I could say that as I just did with my mouth. And then I could still say that it's not right. I condemn, let's say, desecrating a body. And at the same time, I could still say kill every Hamas member. And I could also say that most Israelis are not like that. You're going to have some that lose their shit and who do act like that. The, the interesting part to me is that these people in the middle, and this is half the world, they can't utter those words. They can't make, create that nuance in their brain. They cannot say that Hamas, what they did was wrong, and that Palestinians should, let's say, live in peace. They can't make, they just can't get themselves to do it. And it's either they're lacking something intellectually to be able, either they don't have the utility to do it, 
or they just simply can't get themselves. Maybe peer pressure, maybe it's the bandwagon, maybe they're rooting for their team. I don't know, but that's what interests me. What is the difference there? How come people could do it and some people just can't do it? There's, um, I was listening to someone and she was, she was saying that the anti-Semitism is unreal, that the people with the most Instagram followers, like um, all these celebrities, like Messi and one of the Kardashians, I don't know, there was like 10 of them, and they have literally like over 200 million followers, but they have not come out and said anything against yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I'm like, that's so narcissistic. It's just, this is our America's society. It's narcissism at its best. This will affect me in a negative way. So it doesn't matter what I really think or feel. That's not even there. <laughs> it's all about my, my brand, how I want to come across. It's not even normal. Yeah, that, but that also goes back to the to whether the world cares about. I, I don't think the world cares about Jews um, in that sense that we think that a, a celebrity could or should. Um, they don't want to piss off half of their followers. They have you know two hundred million followers. Uh, um, the the world didn't bomb the railroads to Auschwitz. And now they don't. They still don't care. It's we we think they care. We think the world should care. And we think that, right. oh, oh, you know, but they don't. Right. And they, they, Mayor Kahana understood it and others understood it and said it out loud. And, but we, we, we always think like things change. The world's changing. Things are getting, no, they're not. For the most part, the world still does not care. I was watching the video of uh, Mayor Kahana. Um, naturally, it pops up every time these things take place. So I'm watching it, and it's an interesting topic because it seems, doesn't matter how far, how did we start this conversation about the morality thing, how the West indoctrinates you in a certain type of thinking of what is moral. And we think we went down that road so far, in a certain sense we did, because most people can't utter the words that we're trying to get people to say. But on the other hand, from the other side of it, we haven't gotten past the basic things that Mayor Kahana was arguing about. And it seems that it doesn't matter how much time goes on, his main premise, his main premise seems to be the most true. Those who took the risk and said, we're going to try to, we're going to make a way to make it work. They didn't succeed. Here we are today, 50, whatever years later. 50 years later, he said, "Our, our children and our grandchildren are going to pay the price. And right. here we are. It's beyond belief. So either he's a prophet or he was a chacham. And he just understood. He was pragmatic. And so just to here, just here to, we are. just to be clear, Mayor Kahana's position was that Jews and, and Arabs cannot live together. Oh, talking about the talking about the intellectual nuance. They can't live together. That didn't even though they called him a racist and all this different stuff, he didn't it's hate them. Baloney. They he called actually, him a fascist. He actually respected them and talk about that nuance that I was talking about. You can respect someone and still utter the words that we cannot live together. It will never work because of ideology. He was able to do that. They destroyed him because of it. And today it seems that that's the truth. Shoshi, I know you and your husband were um, big um, Kahanists. Um, Not really. I mean, we were just wannabes. (laughs) We were just, we still are. We're just, you know. Um, what do you think about some of his more so 
So then he takes a little bit of a leap where he starts going a little bit more to the extreme where he says like he would have segregation, segregated beaches and segregated this. Were you guys into that as well? Or was it just the basic premise that we can't live in the I same? Don't, yeah, <laughs> I think it was the, I don't know if we really have delved into like the real Tahana, you know. Um, you want to get your husband, husband on. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's listening. He's <laughs> I even said to him, I'm like, I don't think this is a podcast for me. Do you want to get on? These are two men talking, you know. <laughs> and he's like, Yeah, I'm going to bed. Um, but the premise that it that um this is our land. Arabs should not be here. <laughs> this is ours. There's no room for anybody else and we should fight for it. You know, I think I, I think that's pretty much where it was the premise, and uh, uh, Western politics makes you frown upon the way he spoke and the way he thought, but it doesn't matter how much time goes on, as these things continue to happen, it's, it goes back to being the most logical thing. He understood what we're experiencing. He understood that it'll never work, and maybe the moral thing is to just kick him out and be done with it, so on and so forth, and you know, he lost his life. Wasn't he killed by a, palace, by, by a Arab or something? Yep. In New York. Oh, unless we want to get into a good conspiracy theory. <laughs> about, <laughs> ab- about his death? The Israelis talked about? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that he was... Uh, I mean, they didn't want him in the government. He they was, hated him. You know. They banned his party. They made it, they made it illegal um, to, to for his party to be in the government. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. You should know that um, when we first moved here, we moved to Kiryat Moshe, and my husband was learning in a yeshiva called Machon Meir. It was, uh, it's um, right around the corner from Merkaz Arav, and one of uh, the rabbis there, we were invited to their house for Shabbos, and we're sitting at their Shabbos table, and we're looking at the picture, and we're like, you know, on the background, we're like, oh, that's Merkahana. And the rub is like, yes, that's my father-in-law. <laughs> and um, uh, over time, you know, we were there for about a year and a half. And I can tell you that this family is so incredibly holy and special. And, um, you know, he was a huge force of nature. But, um, you know, and I met his wife and, and these, you know, incredibly, incredibly special, special Neshama, really. He was, he was yes, really, he was. really, really something. And even the big things that they frowned upon him, you know, the way he spoke and maybe got into some fights in Hebron or whatever, he understood the mentality. He, he knew how, it, it's like, you know, you, you, a, a, a secular person goes around Hasidim, they're going to say they're not polite, they push and shove, that's the mentality. He knew the mentality of Middle Eastern and Israelis and Arabs, he knew, he, he spoke that language, and it's not necessarily, uh, it wasn't an evil, he, he was brilliant, brilliant. Oh, far from um, Yuri, what do you think is the, the biggest lesson that we take out of, I guess, this, this entire um, situation? What do we learn from it? The biggest lesson in my mind has to be self-preservation, less reliance on the state and on the security apparatus and the IDF and all this stuff. And I, I say that as an American who loves the Second Amendment and I own a bunch of guns and I carry a gun every single day with me. Please send send some to us, please. Uh, 
because <laughs> we have I'll no way to book. protect ourselves in our DRAF. <laughs> it's crazy. By the grace that of God. Israel by the grace such, of God. Israel has such um, bad gun laws for good people. Most most men, women who served in the IDF, people know how to use guns. They know about gun safety. The, the, Itamar Ben-Gvir, by the way, has been talking about it for six, eight months already. R right when he came in, he says he wants to make gun laws easier. And they're doing it. He's trying to do it. He's doing it. It's crazy to me that you had these border towns unprotected, people without guns and the ability to protect themselves. And what we saw there was the ones that did and could organize quickly, 10, 15 people would hold off huge groups of terrorists. And uh, I think there were at least three that I know of that they couldn't get into, and they were held up. There was a female soldier, I think, at one, did a phenomenal job of organizing, and she shot a bunch of them and uh, others. And they nobody was kidnapped in that yeshuv. Nobody was. There was another yeshuv, ultra religious, where there was a six-hour gun battle between fifteen people, all well trained. So you see, it works. It wasn't all. It wasn't every yeshuv felt to them. Not all of them did, and it was because they their ability, obviously Hashem, but their ability to defend themselves, and they fought back, and they were successful. So to me, that's the lesson, and that has to change because the states, the state can fail, and the states fail, and they don't always do the right thing. Where you can't rely on the government for everything. Allow the people the self determination to defend themselves. That's the lesson, 100%. We discussed this in, um, in our previous episode, and in the, in the description of the previous episode where we discussed this, I actually put the link that you sent me to one of these stories. To clarify that story, you had that little yeshuv where, where the two guys were killed. They held off Hamas for six hours. They saved their, their families. They saved their families. Two of them were killed. So the guys who were protecting the little yeshuv were killed in the end, but their entire family lived. That's what it looks like when you have just a few men who are well-trained and they know how to use their weapons. And um, it, it's such a basic, simple thing. Guns could help save you and your family. Um, and you see that. And in all the ones where they didn't, or the gates were opened and people didn't have time, or even in the police station where they just had pistols and they weren't ready, they got slaughtered. They got They're killed. overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, so that is to me, that's huge, the lesson. huge. I, to me, I, what else? What, what other lesson do you take away from such a horrible tragedy? And I, in my mind, again, a preventable tragedy. We spoke about this. <laughs> of course, Hashem runs the world, but He wants us to do. We have to do what we have to do. You know, Absolutely. Rambam says clearly, not but end. Instead of a but, put an end. <laughs> and, right. And or whatever, whatever Rambam says, even about the destruction of the second base of Migdash. He says if Jews weren't so busy with all kinds of stupid magic and bickering and fighting each other and united and fought the Romans. He said there may have been a different outcome. He, he says that. And we stand every Musaf and saying, but he says, I don't care. Had they gotten together, <laughs> maybe they could have saved themselves. 
So there is that idea of, of pragmatism. Uh, so th that's how I see it. I, I don't think it's way more complicated than that. Well, clearly we feel this way because we're Americans and Americans come with that self-preservation mindset a lot more than Israelis. I don't want to iterate so much because we discussed this in our last episode, but basically Israelis rely heavily on the military and they believe in them a little bit too much. And we know when sticky situations occur, nobody's going to help you besides for you. Nobody's going to be there for you besides for you. It's a huge takeaway. Shoshi, how does it feel to be at home? How does it feel for women to be at home where all the men are not, right? All the, you know, most of the protection, all the guns, <laughs> it's all out of the house. So you're basically sitting at home. Terrible. It feels like you're sitting ducks. There's, it's just a, it's a terrible, terrible feeling. What's the answer to that? Women should also, uh, oh, by the way, on, the, on this topic, they, I, I believe they are going to start uh, didn't you send me a link, Yuri, that they're going to start making it easier to that everyone should have um, yeah. weapons? I, so my son-in-law was my son-in-law was hired by the area here. Um, he is doing guard duty and he's setting up a tactile unit, uh, an emergency one. And he said in in Ramat Beit Shemesh, there's Aleph, Beis, Gimel, Dalit. Hey, there's 60 men, only 60 men that um, are available to come out and to respond to an emergency. I don't know how many cops that is. Um, besides for that, we don't have a very large police station, really very 60 small. Men, because everybody 60 else. men that are, that are um, packing. Because everybody else. Because everybody else. Respond, because everybody else. And he originally told me yesterday that they're working on getting homes and giving families um, uh, what what's the word I'm looking for? Why can't I think of it? What not weapons, guns, pistols, whatever it is. Um, but I spoke to him tonight, and he said that's not the case. So um, could you imagine? So I don't know what there's. Beit Shemesh. Imagine uh, seven to sixty people are protecting Muncie. <laughs> you know what I mean, because all that's the not, men and all the guns. 000. Sure, it's at least a hundred thousand people there. It's nuts. It's it's. And by it's the way, insanity. it's it's complete insanity. But this is where you're going to see Nisim. This is how the Hishtabas and the and the natural teva of things are are going to coincide with Hashem's will. You're gonna you're gonna see it before your eyes that whoever is meant to be taken will be taken, and whoever is meant to be saved will be saved. And that is that is something that we have to accept to be able to live through each day here. We just we cannot live any other way. Amen. This was a conversation about tachlis, you know, the things that, the bottom line, the things that matter. All the other conversations about politics and policy and peace and just nauseating words don't matter. This is what matters, and I think the conclusion is the same conclusion that we had last time. Either uh, Israel will do what they need to do, which is eradicate evil completely and, and utterly. The morally right to do. The right? morally right. Or, or they will not, and we'll be having this conversation, unfortunately, many more times. Um, if they do, by if some I, miracle. One more thing to add. I think a lot of Israelis are going to leave Israel. I think people will leave. They'll Nef move away from there. Say, I can guarantee you Nefesh Benefesh is going to have a rough few years. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, can we leave off of, if we sell this land with Jews... 
and not make any room for Arabs, that's the ideal. So please, I really hope that's not going to happen. I hope that all of you are going to come because there is strength in numbers. We need all of you here. <laughs> Your souls yearn to be here. And, um, and we wait Jews? for all of you. Amen. Every day we wait for all of you. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for your time. All right. Have, Have a, a good, good night. night. Leave a like and subscribe. Subscribe.